Hello, this is Ken Root. I've decided to change the name of this podcast to People in the Know. Since beginning the Better Than Nothing series over 50 podcasts ago, I've wondered if I was diminishing my guest with that playful name. Everyone I interview has something important and informative to say, so I believe they are in the know, so that's what I'm going to call it. This week, I'm talking to a man who has started a new bank. He is Tut Fuller from Dubuque, Iowa. Tut is from a banking family and is an energetic 40-something. He's chairman and CEO of the bank, located in three places, Montezuma and Dubuque, Iowa, and Lubbock, Texas. He talks about the liabilities banks face, including liquidity, interest rates, and inflation. He also has some insights that people are coming back into the post-pandemic workforce. People in the Know is sponsored by Concept by Iowa Hearing. I've worn their hearing instruments for almost 20 years. Concept by Iowa Hearing, committed to helping you hear better. Visit iowahearing.com or call 877-955-4020 for a free hearing screening. This is Ken Root, and today I'm going to talk with a man who has started a bank. Now, that's unusual in these times because we've seen a decline in the number of banks in the United States, in fact, in Iowa, uh, for the last 40 years, if not longer. Um, He is Tut Fuller, and the banker is called Capra Bank, and I'm sitting in your very open office in a little warehouse district, a very nice place, in Dubuque right now. So, first of all, it's good to have you on the podcast, and I know you've been running hard, starting a bank must be a very complex and challenging thing. Well, I appreciate you taking the time and giving me the opportunity to do this and glad to have you in our home base. Um, it's been a busy, what, going on 18 months now, yeah. uh, going on this endeavor. And really, it all started as a question more than a, than a dream, which is, can you build a bank without compromise? And uh, here at Capra Bank, we think we have a recipe for that. Uh, and a recipe that really fights that what we feel is a disturbing trend uh, in consolidation and banking because it, it's not not so bad for the banks, but it's bad for the clients and it's bad for the communities we call home, we think. In the next few moments, I'd like, Tut, for you to talk to me of your perspective on things that are of interest to depositors and those who uh, want to borrow money especially businesses, but we'll also pick up individuals. Right now, it seems like that banks are trying their best to work with their clients in an environment that's uncomfortable in many cases for those businesses. Businesses cite three issues of late, and you may have more. One of them is inflation. That's really the top one. Number two is what they call a broken supply line. And number three is getting quality workers. Do you agree that those are challenges for businesses right now? Yeah, I mean, I I 100% uh, agree uh, that those are key challenges. I mean, I might add a couple to that. Uh, One that has something to do uh, with inflation uh, and interest rates, right, uh, on loans, but is, I feel, rearing its head more is uh, shrinking money supply. Uh, And what that means is that you have liquidity crunches at banks. So... Uh, they actually 
whether it's a bank or credit union, we, we've heard from numerous clients that they just don't have the money to lend. Uh, so you know, that, that's a new one that hasn't been around for a while. Uh, but that, you know, that, that's a huge problem. Let me delve into that. Those of us who are in their latter stages of life who have more capital than they have debt, uh, which is a, f- a few people out there, uh, we want to invest it well. And if you as a bank would offer us an interest rate that would be attractive, we would invest with you. So why is it that it seems to me there's a lot of money out there. Have you not put interest rates at a level to where you can gain access to it? Yeah, so so really need to distinguish us as a startup bank from a legacy bank. So uh, we bought uh, a great fourth-generation community bank in Montezuma, Iowa, uh, run since the 40s, a very liquid bank, so very light on loans, very heavy on deposits. We have since uh, April well over tripled the size of that bank. Uh, So for us, uh, in our growth mode and being able to attract core clients by just being a better bank, uh, offering better technology while giving that local decision-making, we haven't had a problem with liquidity. Uh, We haven't had a problem growing. Now, we are an anomaly, right? Uh, Apparently so. And what, what has happened is during the pandemic, and really for a couple years before then, the, the government, through stimulus and other, other means, drastically increased the money supply of the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, that money supply flowed into banks at times when interest rates were at all-time lows. You remember not that long ago, you weren't getting paid anything right. on your deposits, but also your mortgage didn't cost you anything. They were even trying to charge you a storage fee almost. Yeah, at times, correct. Um, and so what, what happened is banks needed to do something with those deposits. And as a bank you really only have three things to do with deposits. You either make a loan, you leave it sit at the Fed, which at the time they were paying nothing, or you buy a bond. And banks got a little greedy, uh, or a lot greedy, and managed managed to the quarter and not to the long term. And they went out and they bought bonds that were probably too far out uh, on on the curve. Uh, What I mean by that is they were 10-year bonds or 5-year bonds or 20-year bonds, whatever it may be. And when the Fed started increasing rates and rates started coming up, remember, uh, you know, bonds are a liquid environment, and those bonds started having real losses on them uh, in, in terms of value, similar to a stock having a huge loss on its stock price. And that, that is what led, you know, to the collapse of some of the largest regional banks that have ever failed in the history of our country. And that all happened this spring, right? Uh, and so they didn't fail because they had a credit problem. They didn't fail because they had loans go bad. They failed because they didn't have liquidity. Uh, and you can go, and it's public, right? Every quarter, every bank has to submit a, um, a call report. And you can see just how much these unrealized losses in bond portfolios of banks have eroded their capital. So banks actually... Banks always have to keep their balance sheet balanced. Deposits have to balance with loans, the Fed, and bonds. And it's, it's a real problem when your deposits go down, but you can't sell your bonds to keep your balance sheet balanced because you can't afford it because you'll run out of capital. And that's, that's the environment we're in right now. They say that history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. 
And I'm old enough to go back to the late 1970s and into the 1980s when uh, inflation was high and those people who were paying off loans were doing it with cheaper dollars every year. And then uh, at the end of the Carter administration and into the Reagan administration and the era of Paul Volcker at the head of the Fed, it all swapped places, turned upside down in a very short time, and we wound up paying 14% interest on homes and people paying 18 to 20% interest on business loans. I fear that happening again. Do you think that we will go toward that rather than away from it in the year ahead? So uh, predicting where interest rates go is not a good recipe for success. Uh, so uh, it's kind of a flip of a coin. I, it'd be hard for me to imagine going back to that upper teens interest rate environment. Yeah, me too. Um, you know, that being said, I think the Fed has communicated a higher for longer environment, and I do believe in that. Um, remember that same thing with that hyperinflation back then that caused all of the savings and loans to disappear, uh, within a very short period of time. And I think you're seeing a similar stress now. It's just that the inflation didn't get as high. And I think probably the, the regulators are much better at monitoring that and dealing with that now. That's my gut. Can you learn a lesson from this as a country? If the fed throws a rock in the lake, there's going to be consequences of that. We cite the 1980 period. We cite the, the pandemic period. Every time that they make a major change, it seems that there's a long tail on that. Yeah, I mean, it's hard for me to say um, that this is the Fed's fault, quote unquote, right? Uh, you can look at the money supply going back 30 years and see a dramatic uptick right now most recently with the pandemic sure um and those unprecedented times I, I think that being said for me the issue with banks and our credit unions that are under a ton of stress right now or that have failed it's not the ones that have, have just stuck to bread and butter banking or being a credit union it's the ones where there's just been gross mismanagement or you've got a public company uh and a ceo and leadership team that doesn't have you know, a lot of stake in the company and they care more about their W-2 wage uh, than they care about the long-term prospects of the company. So they manage for a quarterly profit and dug themselves a hole. I think, too, you look at Silicon Valley Bank. I mean, there's just some... That didn't fail because of some crazy, miraculous scheme. That that failed because of just... I mean, just... the the it It was stub-your-toe type mistakes that brought down a huge bank, not some huge scheme. Todd Fuller is my guest. He's the president of Capra Bank. It's a new bank with a branch in Dubuque, Iowa, and you also have one in Texas, right? Correct, yeah, and, and Montezuma. So Montezuma, Iowa was the original branch uh, we purchased, and they are doing great and cruising right along, uh, now, now relabeled as Capra Bank. Uh, we opened up here in Dubuque in April, uh, and we opened up in Lubbock, Texas, uh, about a month ago, uh, cruising right along, yeah. You brought up a number of things about this crunch on the money supply, and uh, I want to see if there's any parallel here in what businesses are saying is a problem of getting employees. For a few years during the pandemic, we had people who didn't hardly work at all, and yet they got government money. And it seems like that has run out. But we still haven't seen an uptick 
in people coming back into the workforce. Uh, even though we have a fairly low unemployment, we still have a lot of people out there, it appears to me, who are not in the workforce. Do you think that uh, a crunch will bring them back? So I, you know, I, I don't know what would bring them back, uh, theoretically, or, or why they're coming back. What I can tell you is that unlike uh, in previous times, just within the last month to six weeks, I am hearing about people coming back to work. Uh, and that's new. Uh, I'm not saying that miraculously there's a bunch of skilled welders and electricians and plumbers out there because uh, the pipeline on that is a lot longer. But I will say for the first time in a long time, as I've been going through the facilities of our clients and prospects, they have mentioned that em- employees and candidates are coming back, which to me is a good sign, a very good sign. Have you ever heard this theory that if you go into a convenience store and you ask the clerk how to get somewhere, and they can tell you, then that means that we uh, do not have full employment, and there's people who are working below their grade level at a job. But if you could go into the convenience store and they don't have the slightest idea where they are, then we're at full employment. Is that too robust for you to handle? It's a little, uh, <laughs> it's an interesting one that I have not heard before. I, I kind of get what you're, you're leaning at, right, um, and what you're going for. I, the workforce challenges are real because of demographics in our country. Uh, and just with the sheer size of the baby boomer population that is entering retirement uh, and probably had some retirement sped up because of dealing with the pandemic mm-hmm. and, and burnout, quite frankly, um, and they probably got helped by a good market that made their retirement accounts look a little better for a while. Uh, for a while. Uh, that is a real issue. So even if everyone participated the same, was skilled the same, et cetera, you would have a numbers problem with employment. Uh, and, and that's just real. And that, that's part of actually why our bank is designed the way it is. Uh, our bank is designed to deliver a bank without compromise. For us, what that means is you need leading technology, uh, technology that rivals a national bank or a fintech, but you combine it with great banking advice, experience, service, et cetera. And that wasn't possible until very recently. It's also not possible if you have more than a couple branches. Uh, in Dubuque, we're going to have one branch. We're going to continue to have one branch, and we're going to overfill that branch with experienced bankers who love serving clients, and we're going to enable them and empower them to do that through technology and process and procedure. If you asked me to fill two branches in Dubuque with that, I couldn't do it. Uh, our, our strategy in Lubbock's the same. Uh, you are going to overfill a bank with bankers. And when you walk into this branch, you mentioned it, yeah, it's different in terms of architecture. You do not feel like you're walking into a bank uh, because it looks like you're walking into a tech company or a design firm or whatever. Mm-hmm. The other real difference you should notice is that it's full of people. Uh, and, you know, yeah. I, I grew a little tired of walking into branches and having it look like a zombie apocalypse went off. And I didn't know if I should even be there if there was like a stick up and everyone was locked in the vault. Uh, that's not a good feeling. Uh, and I don't like walking into stores that feel like that. I don't like walking into any place that feels like that. So 
for one reason or the other, no matter what, when we were building this bank, when I looked at the demographic numbers of the different generations, we were going to have a problem with staffing. Uh, and, and so you got to design your business for now, not for before. And that's what we tried to do. I know several of the people in your bank, and my wife knows even more. And uh, uh, we're very positive in our relationship with them. And I think that's a good thing. And I think your environment here tends to pull them in. I mean, I'm a baby boomer, but we're at the far end here. Everybody else is, is wanting to have a, a different world around them. And it seems like you created a very good environment for your employees, not only for the current employees, but future ones that you may attract. Correct. Yeah, I mean, you, know, you, can, you can make a business strategy as complex as you want, and you can overcomplicate whatever you want. Uh, but at the end of the day, if you take care of your clients uh, and you, you start by saying, who, what kind of clients do I want? What segments do I want to go after in business or in personal banking? And then you build your technology and your, your people around that. Uh, and you just make sure you attract the best people and you do things that, that make them happy. I think you take care of your clients and you take care of your employees uh, and investors are going to be just fine community is going to be even better. And I think all of us here have a tremendous tie to this community. Uh, and we're okay living in a world without anonymity. And, and what I mean by that is we, we believe that banking is a relationship business. It's a local business. And so our, our bank is going to target places that are relationship-based. Uh, a big, you, know, you talked about your gas station example. A big test for me about where this bank is going to work, uh, I can tell you where it's not going to work. Uh, I've never, I don't think, been in Denver or Phoenix and met somebody who was born there. True. This bank True. is not for there. Yep. But I'll tell you what, you walk around Dubuque and you meet a lot of people who were born here, came back here, yep. and, and the same thing in Lubbock, same thing in Montezuma. Yep. This is a bank designed for communities where relationships and community matters. Uh, and... You get people united behind a common culture, and you treat them the way they deserve to be treated. And, and I think you got a recipe for success. I also think it helps that we're not competing against Google. We're not competing against Apple. Uh, we're competing against a bunch of banks that are usually not great places to work. Let's take a moment to talk with Taylor Parker, president of Concept by Iowa Hearing. Taylor, I've heard there's a link between hearing loss and dementia. Could you tell me more about the correlation? That is a great question, Ken, and it's one that um, you know has been a, out there for quite a few years. Johns Hopkins uh, was the first one that uh, Dr. Frank Lynn that kind of made the correlation. We always knew there was something going on with you know hearing loss, the brain, and things just weren't weren't you know adding up. And his research now he's been doing his research for about over forty years. What he found is that individuals with an untreated hearing loss, even mild, you are two to five times more likely to develop dementia. And, you know, most people will say, well, why is that? And it's, it's you know, when you understand how hearing works, it starts to become simple from the standpoint of just understanding it. So our ears conduct sound. And then the sound then gets carried from the middle ear to the cochlea where the cochlea, there's 15,000 tiny little hairs in the cochlea that now move back and forth 
that send the signal up to the brain where the brain processes that information. And when you have a untreated hearing loss, what happens is those hairs in the cochlea will either get broken, um, bent, or just not move like they used to. Well, what happens then is they're not sending a full signal to the brain. You know, you've been in radio for, for many, many years. You'll understand this. So imagine, you know, back in the day we were driving down the road, raining really hard or, you know, some kind of elements or we went underneath the bridge and the radio signal would go out. And you're listening to, you know, Paul Harvey at noon and you are, are not quite getting that whole Paul Harvey. And now you're trying to piece it together. You're sitting there, you're leaning forward. You're really trying to get it all to work out. That is your brain all day with an untreated hearing loss. It's trying to piece it together and it's working harder. Well, what it does is it pulls from two areas. It pulls from cognitive and it pulls from balance and gait to compensate for that, that gap because of an untreated hearing loss. The brain then has to work harder. It shrinks. And now we run into a cognitive issue because we've pulled from the cognitive area to help focus on hearing loss. That's where the, the connection now starts to come in. Thank you, Taylor. Schedule your free hearing screening at Concept by Iowa Hearing. You can reach them at 877-955-4020 or online at iowahearing.com. This is People in the Know. I'm Ken Root. We continue my interview with Tut Fuller, founder and chairman of Capra Bank. They have three locations, Montezuma, Iowa, Dubuque, Iowa, and Lubbock, Texas. What I like about a smaller community, and uh, what's the size of Dubuque? 97,000? Yeah, so Dubuque County is right at 100, uh, and Dubuque City is about 59, 60,000. That's above the average for the state of Iowa and the surrounding areas, I would think. But what I'm getting at is, can you be a center? Can you be far enough away from other places to where that you are self-sustaining, self-supporting? Uh, and banks certainly haven't been that way in recent times. They have been branches of somebody bigger and bigger and bigger. Well, they didn't used to be branches of somebody bigger and bigger and bigger, yeah. right? Uh, and I, I think a hidden killer of places uh, like Iowa, like Dubuque, like Lubbock, uh, and there's a lot more. Uh, a hidden killer of those places, in my opinion, is, is the consolidation in the banking industry. Uh, and what I mean by that is if, if the bank consolidates to somewhere, it's a win for that place because that place controls the capital, they, com they, they control the deposits, which really means they, they control the deployment of capital for other businesses. Uh, loans are the cheapest form of capital. That's just a fact of finance. And as long as that is the case, who controls the deposits? controls the capital for, for fueling the economy. And what we've seen uh, here in Dubuque, for example, is that we used to have two very strong local banks. Uh, the one you banked with, which wasn't the one I worked at, uh, and the one I hired your banker from, uh, and, and the one I worked at. And now we've lost those. And uh, as a result, Dubuque is now the only metro in Iowa without a leading community bank. The top two banks in our community are not local. 
Uh, as a result, in the last year, you've seen the money supply in Dubuque, as measured by the FDIC, shrink by about 10%. And I don't think it's a real shocker that all that money came from the redeployment of those deposits out of the two banks that, that got consolidated. You can't be a country that's successful if you've got a shrinking money supply. Uh, you can't be a community. You can't be a state. And I think our, our bank's just designed to, to combat that and beat that. Because you don't have to bank with a huge bank anymore to get leading technology and great bankers. Well, Todd Fuller, Capra Bank, not all is uh, downside right now. Uh, many people are still saying, economists, that we have a booming economy in this country. And the strength is still there, and there's no recession on the horizon. Uh, so growth can go on even with the detriments that, you know, we've laid out here. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I think, uh, I, I do agree. You know, I, let's take the pandemic out of it. You know, that, that had economic consequences, and that technically was recession for a couple quarters, right? That was because of the pandemic. That wasn't because of some business failure. Other than the Great Recession, uh, which is the last one we went through, most recessions hit regions or specific parts of the economy. They don't hit the whole economy. And I do think that's what you're seeing. Uh, and there's still a ton of capital. There's still a ton of health uh, in businesses. And yeah, you know what? Are some industries struggling? Yes. Uh, but you know that's kind of my opinion about how this whole thing's going to go. Uh, I don't think you're going to see a financial collapse. Uh, and I, I just think the you know the Great Recession is the most recent one, so it's top of mind. Uh, that being said, that was the worst one since the Great Depression. And every other one has been much more targeted either regionally or to specific industries. I said earlier that uh, the Fed getting into uh, changing the size of the money supply and things of that was a, uh, was, a, was a factor that disrupted things quite a bit. I guess I should have broadened that out to say the federal government getting into trillions of dollars that it threw at the economy during the recession uh, has disrupted things. And I'm getting the backside of that now from businesses and individuals who say that, uh, you know, they got money for no reason and didn't really know what to do with it. And then now they, those of them who built onshore facilities because we didn't want to have a supply chain that was worldwide, that onshore facility has never opened. They've never even used it yet. Or there has been a huge amount of money wasted on building capabilities for supplies in this country that our businesses find to be too expensive, so they're still buying overseas. And I wonder if American business at times isn't its own worst enemy in trying to go for the lowest price, even though the risk of having a disruption makes it much greater. Yeah, I mean, so a lot to unpack there uh, in what you just said. I, I do, th I, I think a couple things, though. One, when an unprecedented once-in-a-century pandemic happens, yeah. uh, you know, I've, I travel a lot, uh, went to South Africa a year ago. South Africa's response to it was nothing, and it put a lot of people in a tough spot, but they got through it, but I don't know how far it set their economy back either. The answer in the United States was a very quick response uh, administered through uh, PPP lending, right, yeah. uh, which was administered through banks. It got money back out. The economy never stopped. It cranked. 
you can argue kind of should we have done that much, should we not have. What I can tell you is it, it definitely kept – there wasn't a catastrophe. I think a bigger issue for me uh, is that as a banker, we wouldn't lend money to somebody who kept spending more than they took in. That makes sense to me. But year <laughs> after year, uh, decade after decade, it seems, uh, except for in the early 90s, the government's spending more than they take in. Sure. And that, I just don't understand how that is a long-term recipe for success. To your other point about onshoring, I hope that a lesson from the pandemic is that businesses build resiliency into their plan. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, pretty not funny, maybe, isn't the right word, but an interesting comment came from Toyota. During the pandemic, everyone shut down, except for who? Toyota. Toyota pioneered just-in-time manufacturing. Uh, Every other car company in the U.S. copied it. The key thing that Toyota came out with during the pandemic is their just-in-time philosophy only matters if you co-locate your facilities. So that means that you don't have a plant in Detroit getting parts from China. That means if you're Toyota, your suppliers and your immediate supply chain is right around you. I think just-in-time is fine if everything else is right next door in the warehouse next door. Uh, Just-in-time doesn't work so hot if all your parts are in a container that's stuck in China. I'm a huge believer in automation. I'm a huge believer in what you could call blue-collar and manufacturing automation. I'm a huge believer in what you would call white-collar automation and, and, and bots that work, in, you know, work with processes and computers. I'm a huge believer in, in the United States uh, as, right. as the power of, uh, of the world, the economic power of the world. And, and because we're the economic power of the world, we get to do a lot of other things uh, to keep, keep things stable and safe. The U.S. can maintain its competitive edge, but automation has to be key. You gotta automate, uh, and you gotta build resiliency. So, do you consider artificial intelligence automation? Uh, yeah, of course. Uh, that's the newest kind of version of it. Uh, I don't know that I'm, you know, completely sold on some like refined models of that in heavily regulated industries. Uh, perhaps, but you can have plenty of automation without the need for some scary artificial intelligence. Let me finish up with this, and I do appreciate you being so open and discussing things from a, a, your perspective, and you've obviously thought about this a lot. What about you as an individual? What do you like to do? What are your hobbies? What are the things that you enjoy if there's ever a moment you're not thinking about Capra Bank? So I'm kind of always thinking about the bank, uh, but, you know, that, that's okay. I don't know that I'm a huge believer in, in work-life balance. I don't really know what that means. Uh, I think what it, for me, I kind of got over that a long time ago. And instead, it means that, you know, I don't know what the catchphrase would be, but effectively it boils down to if you love your job and you love what you do, you don't, you don't ever really feel like you have to work. Yeah. Uh, and I've been fortunate enough to, to have the resource to, to build what I view as, you know, kind of the next model of community banking uh, and it should in my opinion it should be the next model of banking and I, you know that doesn't mean that city or jp morgan or those other banks don't serve a purpose they do and they should be there and and that's important for our government actually i think there's a whole bunch in the middle that make no sense they have inferior technology your money isn't safe there 
uh, as safe as you think it should be for how big they are. Uh, and they're slow to react, and they don't empower their employees, and, and I don't get it. I am kind of always thinking about the bank. The other beauty about this bank is that I get to come in and work with a bunch of people I really like being around. Yeah. Uh, and I do view them as my, my family outside of my family. On the flip side, not at work. Uh, I have a wife and three kids, and I love spending time with them. But also, you know, it, it is tough because I feel like I don't get to spend enough time with them. For me, it's been about spending a lot of time, as much time as you can, and just kind of being present when you're around your kids. Uh, because I actually also don't believe in that phrase, like, quality time. I think you got to just spend as much time as you can. And in that time, you get, like, quality little nuggets here or there. Uh, and that's kind of what, what I look forward to. Love, we have a farm uh, south of Dubuque. Love spending time on the farm. Uh, I love being outdoors. I love hunting. Uh, you know, love traveling, most of which involves hunting. Uh, try and squeeze in the hunting part and then maybe spend the rest of the week doing something else. But I think you learn a lot just by getting out there and pushing yourself into uncomfortable positions and experiencing new things and observing. And Well, you've committed to starting this bank. You're now actively running it, and it looks like your crew uh, definitely is all pulling in the right direction with you. So I'm sure all of us are going to want to follow this, and I follow it very positively in the hope that you can reverse a trend of our money going out of our local communities and far away, and also that the businesses who want to come to you can see you as a, as a competent partner in what they're attempting to do in the future. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more, right? Um, our, our view of this bank is, you know, we don't really understand why you wouldn't want a bank here. If you really like great technology, we've got it. If you really like the ability to call your banker on their cell phone and want them to fix something instantly, they can do that too. And we think that's unique. Uh, and we love, we love helping people and we love our communities and, and banking's our tool to do that. There are a lot of other tools. It just so happens that banking's what we do, right? So, Todd Fuller, Capra Bank, Dubuque. Thank you. Thank you very much. Appreciate the time. Thanks for listening to People in the Know. I'm on the hunt for guests to interview. If you have suggestions, contact me at this email address, kenroot at gmail.com, K-E-N-R-O-O-T at gmail.com. Have a great week. As I went down in the river to pray, studying about that good old way, and who shall wear the starry crown? Good Lord, show me the way.